The question of generation to generation has interested me for many, many years. And when I use the phrase generation to generation, I'm echoing language that is found within Scripture, particularly, for example, in Psalm 78 that talks about the importance of each generation witnessing to the next generation and even to those as yet unborn, Psalm 78 says. It is of interest, of course, to those of us that are parents. You can't be a parent and not be wondering about the role of a parent in passing on the faith from one generation to the next. But that interest level gets heightened even more when one becomes a grandparent. I'm the grandparent to six. And we had all six of our grandchildren visiting with us this summer. Some kind of a transition happened over the course of the last year or two because now we have three in their teens and three that are quite young. And the three that in their teens stay up late and expect grandpa to stay up with them. And those that are young get up early and expect grandpa to make breakfast for them. So if I seem somewhat sleep deprived, that's what that goes back to. But there's something very sweet and tender about having one's grandkids in the house and on the property and be thinking about the question about how the faith is transmitted from one generation to the next. The question interests me not only as a father and as a grandfather, but also as a pastor and as a theologian. As a theologian, I've given a lot of attention to the whole meaning of conversion and in particular to how conversion happens within faith communities, with how indeed a faith community nurtures the faith in the children of the church. And when you're interested in this kind of a topic and you're asking how does it happen, there are many texts of scripture to which you could turn. One such text of scripture, for example, is Deuteronomy 6 or Deuteronomy 11 that speaks about the importance of parents passing on the faith to the children of the church. I mentioned Psalm 78 in the New Testament. We could go to both Ephesians and in Colossians. But a text that looks at both the home and the church, and thus the text that I would like to draw to your attention this morning, is the text of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And if you have your Bibles or your smartphones, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to, these, to this text of Scripture, actually there's going to be two texts of Scripture, 2 Timothy 1, verses, 2 Timothy 1, 1 through 7, and then also in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Give ear, for what I'm reading is God's Word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, for the sake of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did, when I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. And then in chapter 2, notice please verses 1 and 2. You then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me through many witnesses, entrust to faithful people who will be able to teach others as well. Thus far, God's word. Let us pray. O God of all grace, grant us, I pray, this grace that through your word and through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you would illumine our minds 
rekindle our hearts and strengthen our wills. Grant us this grace, we pray, for we ask it through Jesus Christ, the risen and ascended Lord. Amen. As I mentioned, part of what draws this text to my attention is that it speaks to both the church and the family when it comes to the transmission of the faith from one generation to the next. The reference to the family is quite explicit and obvious. You see it in, in chapter 1, verse 5, when he makes reference to Lois and Eunice and to Timothy. He says to Timothy that he's assured, he is confident that Timothy has a sincere faith. And as he puts it, it's a sincere faith that first resided in his grandmother Lois and then in his mother Eunice and now resides in him, Timothy. It, this is a, a text of scripture that catches my attention personally or autobiographically in large measure, perhaps, because my middle initial T happens to stand for Timothy. So I was named after this gentleman. And so, you know, when your name kind of comes up in the biblical text, you're supposed to kind of take note, I guess. Uh, but it just so happens that my mother's name is Eunice. Now, if I had pulled it off that my grandmother's name was Lois, you would have been very impressed. Uh, but I, I came along too late to kind of choreograph that one. But nevertheless, I can't read this text without not only being aware of my own faith, but also the faith of those that have gone before me. I think of my grandmother in Belleville, a part of the Belleville, now what is Quinty Alliance Church, Emily, Emily Veely. I'm part of that clan. And she nurtured my mother, Eunice, in the faith. And my mother, Eunice, met Cecil. And Cecil and Eunice nurtured me and my, my siblings in the faith. I would not be here were it not for the faithful ways in which they nurtured us in the gospel in the Christian faith as we were children. I cannot, in a sense, preach this text without being aware of how grateful I am to those that have gone before me, but also then to realize that having received the faith from those that have gone before me, I turn. And I have a responsibility to my sons. And as I mentioned, I, have a, I feel keenly the responsibility, not merely to my sons, but to my grandchildren. And then again, I'm struck by that line in Psalm 78 that speaks about those as yet unborn. That indeed, the assumption seems to be within the scriptures that the faith is being transmitted from one generation to the next. We look back, as Psalm 78 says, to our ancestors, to the Loises and the Eunices that have gone before us. We receive the faith and then we pass on the faith to the next generation, all with the intent that it would go on to the next generation and then to beyond to those again as yet unborn. And here's something that is rather crucial about our understanding of the parental role. You cannot delegate this away. Yes, and I'm going to stress the importance of the faith community as an intergenerational community. But as parents, it behooves us to recognize that it's a central, if not critical part, if not perhaps in one sense, the most important part of what it means to be a parent. That you can't delegate this away and say, well, we'll send them to church, we'll send them to Sunday school and let them do the religious stuff while we take care of everything else. And for those of us within our religious subcultures that have kind of been inclined to think that women are more spiritual than men, and how often I think sometimes fathers think, well, we'll let our wives, we'll let the mothers do the religious things while we take care of everything else. What I think needs to be stressed is the vital role that mothers and fathers have, not only in receiving the faith, but in passing on the faith to their children, all again with the view that it's passed on from one generation to the next. The text then refers to the family, but notice also that it refers, it may not seem so obvious at first, but you cannot really miss it if you look for it. And that is to realize that the text also speaks about the transmission of faith within the faith community from one generation to the next. 
Notice how Paul speaks about his relationship with Timothy. It's very tender language. In verse 2 of chapter 1, he says, To Timothy, my beloved child. And then he picks up this same kind of language in verse 1 of chapter 2. Notice what he says. You then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He speaks of him as his child, as his son in the Lord. And that's an important phrase because clearly he's not his biological father. So why would he speak of him as his child or as his son? Very specifically because clearly Paul played a pivotal role in Timothy's coming to faith. He's his father, so to speak, in the Lord. He provides a spiritual parentage to Timothy. And yet what intrigues me is not only does Paul speak about his relationship to Timothy in such manner. Notice how he speaks about his own faith in verse 3 of chapter 1. He says, I'm grateful to God whom I worship with a clear conscience. He speaks about his own faith. He worships with a clear conscience. And then this line, as my ancestors did. So notice then what he's doing. He speaks about his own faith, but he looks back to his ancestors. He locates his own faith. Within, in a sense, a transmission from one generation to the next, looking back to his ancestors. Then he turns and he speaks about Timothy as his dear child or dear son in the Lord. And then what does he say to Timothy in what is probably the most quoted text in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2, when he says to Timothy to teach others who are then in turn capable of teaching others. That is. Paul assumes that the church is an intergenerational community where an older generation is passing on the faith from one generation to the next. And just as I cannot preach this text without being deeply grateful for my parents and my grandparents, I also cannot preach this text without acknowledging in gratitude the older men, and in my case it's particularly older men, who nurtured me in the faith, the kind of men of whom I could say they are my fathers in the Lord. They are, I am their dear son. And one of those is Ross Ingram. And it's very special and tender for me to be here in this pulpit. I don't I know we don't say in this pulpit anymore, but, you know, figuratively speaking, I'm not in the pulpit, but to be in the pulpit where I know Ross preached. And he was preaching here while I was a young, struggling, underwhelming, if the truth be known, pastor, at the Peterborough Alliance Church just up the road. And I wonder how I would have navigated those years were it not for the faithful presence, mentoring, and encouragement of Ross Ingram. And he was one of four men who were huge to me during my 20s and 30s. Four men who were to me spiritual fathers, mentors, so much so that I could say the words again, I would not be here were it not for them were those who were Paul's to me as the Timothy, who then empowered me in such a way that I could in turn empower those that are following us. And I think about both family and church when it comes to my role as the president of a Christian university, Ambrose University and Seminary in Calgary. Because you see, probably, we're going to have approximately 900 students there this fall in various kind of programs and educational kind of trajectories. But the vast majority of those students are somewhere between the ages of 18 and 23. Yes, of course, we have seminary students, and their average age is somewhere in their mid-30s. 
And we have many older students in undergraduate programs, and I really delight in them. I'm walking down the hall, I meet somebody who's my peer age-wise, and I assume, I don't know, they're a guest lecturer or mentor or lecturer or something like that. And no, no, they've gone back to school. And they've gone back to school now at this stage of life and are looking forward to the next chapter of their life. And it's quite fun to imagine them in the classroom with all these 21-year-olds, however tough that might be. But bless their hearts, they go for it. But the majority of our students are between the ages of 18 and 23, probably 80-85% of the people are on the campus. And why this is noteworthy is that those years just happen to be those pivotal years in which as often as not a person is going to make a decision about whether or not they're going to embrace the faith in which they have been raised and the majority of our students come from Christian homes and whether they're going to embrace the faith of their faith community and the majority of our students have been raised in churches from which they have come to our university. And so we're asking the question, how can we reinforce the family practice of passing on the faith from one generation to the next? How can we strengthen that and be part of that? And how can we work with churches so that the faith is indeed transmitted from one generation to the next? As these young people come to us from these homes and from these churches, we're asking the question, how does this happen? We ask it as parents and grandparents. We ask it as faith communities. And we ask it as an institution such as our own. How does it happen? How does the faith get transmitted from one generation to the next? In one very real sense, the answer to that question is not that complicated. And it's alluded to, well, actually, it's not alluded to, it's, made, it's referenced quite explicitly in 2 Timothy 2 2, when Paul, writing to Timothy, uses the operative word, you might say. When he says to the next generation and to the next generation, what does Paul say that Timothy needs to do? He says to teach those who are capable then of teaching others. In a very real sense, the faith is transmitted from one generation to the next by teaching. How do we make disciples? Matthew 28, by teaching. How do we pass on the faith? By teaching. In fact, there is no religious, theological, or spiritual tradition that takes teaching more seriously than does the Judeo-Christian tradition. We believe that indeed faith communities, churches, are teaching learning communities. We make disciples by teaching. We read that the early church, Acts 2.42, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We are involved, we're, we're into teaching. Does this mean then that as parents, and we're supposed to kind of teach our children, does this mean that we're supposed to set up little, you know, classrooms in our homes and smart boards and all of that? Well, I suppose if, you know, that's your thing, give it a go. But... What we are reminded of in Deuteronomy 6 and 11 is that teaching happens all the time. It happens along the way. That as our children accompany us to a grocery store, we have the occasion to remind ourselves and them that all of this produce is a gift from God and that God cares for us providentially. When our children come home from school at the end of the day, we can debrief with them, reflect on the day, and use every opportunity as a teaching-learning moment. We're always, in a sense, teaching our children. And indeed, the most powerful teaching happens not formally in classrooms, but along the way. Similarly, within the church, uh, teaching is utterly pivotal. And I'm intrigued and delighted, indeed, that the children are with us this morning. But what we witnessed this morning was indeed a teaching-learning opportunity. We're involved in teaching our children, and there are formal times in which we teach our children. And we have, it's very rare that you have a church that doesn't have a Christian education kind of facility with classrooms where, indeed, teaching and learning can happen as the faith is transmitted from one generation to the next. And yet, here, too, we need to stress the following. However important these formal occasions are, 
where we have a specific theme, gentleness, that's going to be talked about, and where we have a class where a Bible text is going to be explored, all of that to the good, some of the most powerful, if not the most powerful teaching, happens again, not in formal settings, but along the way. We're older men and younger men, older women, younger women. We're older and younger are in casual, informal, yet indeed providentially governed conversation. That is a teaching learning opportunity. And when I see about these, uh, this visit to the, the First Nations community, and there's older ones and younger ones, and I imagine them on the bus on the way there, or traveling together, or walking together, and I imagine the learning that is happening as older people are involved in conversation with younger ones, and each of those an opportunity to grow in wisdom, in understanding, in learning, a teaching learning opportunity. And yet, this morning, as we look at this text, there's something else that I long for you to see. Yes, of course, Paul was a teacher to Timothy. And essentially, 2 Timothy is a teaching document. Paul, writing to Timothy, is an older man to a younger man, is passing on wisdom. He's going to teach him. But what I want you to see, I invite you to see, is that before he teaches Timothy in this document, he does two other things. He's going to teach him, all with a view that Timothy in turn would be capable of teaching others. But before he teaches Timothy, he does two other things that I urge you to see and embrace. One is that before he teaches Timothy, he blesses Timothy. And second, before he teaches Timothy, he assures Timothy of his prayers. Constantly, he says in verse 3, remembering you in my prayers. Blessing and the assurance of prayers. First, notice if you would the blessing. It comes through in more than one way, actually, in this text. The text actually opens, 2 Timothy 1, verse 2, when Paul says, To Timothy, my beloved child, and then he pronounces a benediction. He says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. He opens with a benediction. Normally, when we think about a blessing or a benediction, typically, at least within a worship service, a benediction typically would come at the end of the worship service. You know, we kind of we have a call to worship. We have the worship. We have the sermon. Hopefully that doesn't go too long. And then we have a closing hymn and then we have the benediction and then we can go for our mid-morning coffee, breakfast, cappuccino, whatever it is you're thinking about while I'm speaking that you are anticipating that is yet to come post benediction. It comes at the end. And somehow if you showed up and they were pronouncing the benediction, you'd know, you, oh, I guess we just went on daylight savings time and I kind of missed that on my phone. I came late, an hour late in the spring, but be that as it may, we normally think of it as the end and appropriately so. And yet here it is interesting that Paul, who often ends his letters with a benediction, here he opens this letter with a benediction. And indeed it is a reminder that it is both fitting and appropriate to open with a benediction, but that perhaps by opening with a blessing, Paul has an intention here. That his benediction, his blessing comes first, I think, is hugely significant. I'll come back to that. Notice then also the blessing that emerges in verse 4 when he says, Recalling your tears, he, he writes to Timothy. He says, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. For you see, one of the most powerful ways in which we bless another person is by delighting in their company, by enjoying their presence. One of the most powerful ways that I can bless my wife is to delight in her company, to enjoy her, to delight in her. And indeed, one of the gifts that is given to me over the next three days is I fly this afternoon to Vancouver. She flies into Vancouver. We get our car that's waiting for us there, and we're gone for the next three days. No cell phone, no disconnect, just the two of us. 
enjoying each other's company, blessing one another. And how do I bless my children, my sons? By enjoying and delighting in their company. Two men in their mid-30s. And Joel and I have started to use the phrase, the friendship of our adult children, and realize what a deep and powerful blessing that is to us, but also, of course, I trust to them as well. And then part of my role as a grandfather, and apparently it doesn't go much beyond this, but this is what I'm supposed to do, is that I'm supposed to bless my grandchildren. And as I mentioned, I have six of them, and I delight in them. Whether it's early morning or late at night, I delight in them. And I, uh, I think they enjoy me. Uh, as far as I can tell, I have six grandchildren, four grandsons and two granddaughters. The grandsons are a little less, so to speak, expressive of this. That is, they really seem to like grandpa. But there's no doubt about it with the granddaughters. Um, It really is quite delightful. They think actually very highly of me as I think of them. In fact, they would have no problem saying, Grandpa, you're awesome. That is, they think I'm awesome. And you may think to yourself, Gordon, the fact that your granddaughters think you're awesome does not make you awesome. It just means your granddaughters think you're awesome. So I know maybe you're thinking I shouldn't let it go to my head, except for this. If you were to meet my granddaughters, ages six and, uh, seven and five, if you were to meet my granddaughters, you would be immediately impressed that they have good judgment and discernment. So just <laughs> kind of like for what it's worth, I, I think that uh, you would kind of uh, uh, view that through another lens. And maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, sure, of course they like you. Uh, but when they become teenagers, they're going to be somewhat underwhelmed, I expect. And I'll cross that bridge when I get there. Spare me already. I'm going to enjoy it while I've got it, that these two little girls think I'm awesome. Hello. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, the only reason why they like you so much is because you like them so much. That is, maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, the only reason why they bless you, delight in you, think you're awesome, is because you bless them. Yeah, you're right. It could very well be that all that is, that blessing, is an echo, you might say, of the blessing that I, from the older generation, am granting to them. And indeed, this is gospel. Why do we bless God today? Because God has blessed us. Why do we delight in God? Because God has chosen to delight in us. Our, in a sense, celebration and blessing of God is but an echo of what he has granted to us. There's something deeply powerful about the, about the initiative that comes from the older generation to the younger in this particular case. And I'll come back to that as well. And then notice a third expression of blessing in the text when Paul says to Timothy, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God that is given to you through the laying on of my hands. Wow. What's happening here? Paul here... As an older pastor, as an older minister, has, is referring to the fact that with Timothy, he laid hands on him and he passed on, you might say, the anointing. An ancient practice whereby an older person within a particular craft or sphere of responsibility would pass on blessing to the next generation. Would indeed anoint the next generation within the craft, within the occupation. It's like an older carpenter passing on blessing to a younger carpenter. Like an older craftsperson passing on the blessing to the next generation. Here is exactly what is happening. And Paul is saying now the anointing passes. Paul, at the end of his life, likely writing this letter from prison, 
likely recognizing that he is coming to the denouement, the conclusion of his own ministry, now turns and blesses the next generation and realizes that now as he writes this letter, the baton is being passed on. And he anoints him, lays hands on him and says, now take it from here. It is a very powerful form of blessing. But the main thing I want to stress is this, that Paul, as I stressed, blesses Timothy before he teaches Timothy. Out of the gate, he reinforces several times over that he is blessing this young man whom he's about to teach. That as he passes on wisdom, he blesses before he passes on the wisdom. And the reason why this is so terribly significant is that deep within our various cultures, our various ethnic orientations, within our various systems of family, society, and culture, we have this deep assumption, it's virtually universal, that if I am going to bless my sons, if we are going to bless the next generation, we bless them because they fulfill our expectations. We bless them because they receive our wisdom. We bless them because they get their act together and they, are, they, we, they, they live in a way that is congruent with our teaching and wisdom. So teach, the assumption would be, if my sons want my blessing, they need to receive my wisdom. And until then, all they're going to get is the furrowed brow. And if you can't see it from where you're seated, I have a well-developed furrowed brow. It's a source of some concern to my wife because she says, you know, you need to come across as gentle. I heard you this morning working on it. No furrowed brows. That is, we do not bless our children until they fulfill our expectations. But could it be that we have nothing to offer? We have no wisdom to give, no teaching and instruction to offer the next generation until we bless them. Could it be that in the very nature of of the transmission of the faith from one generation to the next, that wisdom follows blessing, that we don't have, and I don't know of a better way to phrase this, so forgive me if this doesn't sound quite right, but we don't have the political capital, the social capital to teach if we don't bless. Bless, Blessing, in a sense, opens the portals, the gates for us to have the right, in a sense, to speak. And as I said, I have two sons in their mid-30s, married, children, we visit them, we drive to their homes, we come for dinner, we come for supper, we spend an evening. And, uh, and I, it, it, it's, it's always very special to show up at their home and to open the, open the door and greet them all. But as we drive up to their homes, uh, oftentimes Joella will remind us, me, 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 because she already knows, um, remind me of our rule. Now, our rule is actually her rule, but because it's her rule, it's our rule. Um, and our rule goes like this. No unsolicited advice. Well, this is hugely a problem because you see, um, I have so much wisdom to give to these guys. <laughs> like a lot. I have a lot of wisdom about how they raise their kids, about how they manage their homes, about how they manage their jobs. I mean, what's the point of being older if you're not a kind of a source of wisdom? So given that the rule is no unsolicited advice, I feel my only recourse is to hint broadly at the wisdom that should be available to them, should they but ask. You know, I, I sense you're having some issues here with your daughter. There's wisdom available if you would just ask. I'm not, I, the, our rule is no unsolicited advice, but as soon as you ask, I, it'll come there in buckets. I'll bring you a Niagara Falls of wisdom if you would but ask. But indeed, what is the point of the rule? The point of the rule is that as we move into these homes, what is it that our sons need from us? 
What is it that our daughters-in-law need from us? What is the greatest gift that we can give to them? Is it our wisdom, however much I'm sure you think I have for them? I was hoping for an amen back there about that point, but I didn't get one. What is it they need from us? Their greatest need from their parents is our blessing. We bless them. I bless my sons. And indeed, I'm struck by, even at this stage of their lives, how crucial and important my blessing is to them. I come to bless. I come to delight in, to enjoy their company. I come to be a source of gracious blessing to them. And you may be thinking to yourself, Mr. Smith, sounds to me like you have two very fine sons. And I do. But you don't know my daughter. Ouch. You don't know my son. You would not be talking like this if you knew my son or my daughter. And I ask, I trust this doesn't sound offensive. I ask as gently as I know how, where do you get off? Do you not realize, I alluded to this earlier, do you not realize that in a very real sense, the gospel is at stake here? For the gospel goes as follows, that God loved us while we were yet sinners. This is the very heart of the gospel. You are here blessing God today, not because you got your act together, not because you received wisdom and instruction and look what a civil person you are, what a good person you are. God loves us and blesses us out of the gate and out of the gate then invites us to walk in righteousness and truth and in wisdom. But because we are children of God, because we have been blessed. And I wonder indeed if there isn't a sense in which every time there's a transmission of faith from one generation to the next, fathers and mothers to their children, that the gospel is being embodied and is at stake. We live out the gospel. We demonstrate that we truly believe the gospel in the way that we relate to our sons and daughters. Do we bless them? And the fact of the matter is, This tends to be a much bigger issue in our cultures for men than it is for women. Women, bless your hearts, mothers. You'll bless anything that's got a pulse. There's no discrimination whatsoever, I tell you. But for men, it's a struggle. I met a year and a half ago. I spoke at a conference on this theme. And a woman came up to me afterwards. This was down in uh, in Wisconsin. Um, A woman came up to me afterwards and she said that her son had been incarcerated three and a half years before that. And he was due to come out of the penitentiary in Colorado. He was due to come out in May of 2015. I've had no contact with her since then, so I don't know what happened. But what I do know is this, that she says, I go to the penitentiary every week to be with my son, to remind him again that I love him, that I'm there for him, and that I will always be there for him. But his father has never gone His father will not go, refuses to go. His father is angry, embarrassed, ashamed, wants nothing to do with his son. And then these words, I dread the day he comes home and the two of them have to meet one another again. And I say, damn it. What would it have taken? What would it have meant if this man had gone week in and week out and had said to his son, you are my son, first and foremost? And I bless you, my son. And I love you, my son. And I will always be there for you, my son. That is baseline, regardless of anything else that happens. What would it have meant for him to embody the gospel with his son? The fact of the matter is that those of us in our cultures that are men, we tend to struggle with this a little more. And we need to do the stretch 
to get rid of the furrowed brow and to learn what it means to respond with gentleness to our sons and to our daughters. God grant me, God grant to us this grace. Then second, Paul, not only does he bless Timothy, as I said, the other thing that he does is he assures Timothy of his prayers. That is what we are reminded of is, of course, that Paul is praying for Timothy. And I think this is terribly significant. And perhaps you do as well. And you're prepared to say, well, in actual fact, you spent quite a bit of time, Mr. Smith, on the blessing piece. But on the prayer, actually, we do pray for our kids. And so you can kind of move along more quickly on this point because... It's important that we get out of the service in reasonable amount of time to get because we have brunch afterwards. And if we get out late, the Baptists, the Mennonites and all the other people get to the church, get to the restaurants before we do. So you kind of have to kind of move this thing along. But I want you just to kind of just wait here. Go slowly for a minute. Yes, of course, Paul is praying for Timothy. And there's no throwaway words here. He's not just saying, you know, I pray for you like I fear oftentimes we do. To kind of as to kind of grease the wheels of the relationship. He's reminded Timothy of his prayers and it has weight. It has significance. And indeed, you're right. What I'm going to be urging you to do is to pray for your sons and your daughters and your grandchildren. And what I'm going to be urging you to do is that those of us that are older within the faith community are indeed praying for those that are younger within the faith community, that we are indeed a praying community when it comes to intergenerational transmission of faith. Yes. And yet I wonder How do I know that you pray for your children? How do I know that as older ones within this congregation that you are praying for the younger ones? Well, maybe you'll say, I'll meet you at the back afterwards and I will tell you, I pray for my son. There, you can check it off your list. It's done. But how do I know? Just because you tell me I know? What is the evidence that we pray for our sons and daughters? What is the evidence that we pray for our grandchildren? What is the evidence that we are praying for the next generation? How do I know that you are a prayer? I wonder if the evidence is not that you say you do, but I wonder if the evidence is captured by the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 4 when he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in prayer and supplication present your request to God and receive the peace that transcends all understanding. I wonder if the evidence that you pray for your sons and your daughters is that you are not worried about them. Whoa. And I say, whoa, because I know full well that for many of you, that's what it means to be a mother. Like a mother is worried. That's how this works. You know, you're almost probably wondering where I came from. Mothers worry. That's how this works. To be a mother is to be worried about your children. In fact, probably some of you are thinking there are many other really good mothers here, but I worry about my kids way more than any of them. I worry about them all the time. I worry about them in the morning before they go to school. I worry about them when they're at school. I worry about them when they're on the way home from school. I worry about them in the evening. I worry about their past, their present, and their future. That basically that's what it means to be a mother. I'm worried about them all the time. I wake up in the middle of the night worried about them. Why? Because I'm a good mother. Be anxious for nothing, but in prayer and supplication, present your request to God and receive the peace that transcends all understanding. I wonder what Paul is saying here is that he's not anxious for Timothy, Because he has entrusted him to God. I wonder if what Paul is inviting all of us to do is to not be anxious for our children, but to trust them to God. For indeed, here too, the gospel is at stake. Here too, the gospel is at stake. Do we really trust God's providential care? Do we live, you might say, deeply aware that God is the good shepherd who cares for his sheep? 
And the fact of the matter is, as I've already alluded, I think the blessing question is a, is a question that in our culture, men need to wrestle with more. But when it comes to this one, I know that some women wish their husbands worried more about the kids. What's wrong with you? Aren't you worried about these kids? It's an issue. We're working on it. But as, an, as a rule in our culture, it's women that struggle more with anxiety when it comes to the home. And indeed, it's a helpful question to ask. Were you raised in a home where the emotional contours and climate were characterized by the peace that transcends all understanding? Or was it an anxious home? And as often as not, forgive the gender stereotype, but as often as not, it's the woman and the mother who shapes the ethos, the culture, more powerfully than any other, at least whoever is the primary homemaker. But as often as not for young children, they hear their mother's heartbeat. They feel their mother's heartbeat. And it has a powerful impact even from before they were born. Be anxious for nothing, but receive the peace that transcends all understanding. As I said, this is a matter not only for the home, but it's also a matter for the church. That as a church, we are a community where indeed mothers and fathers are raising their children. But one of the things I was deeply conscious of through my son's teen years is that I was in over my head. There was no way I could manage male teens on my own. And how deeply grateful I am and was and continue to be for the faith communities of which we were a part, where older men and older women were deeply invested in the lives of our sons. And indeed, I wonder this question, that whether or not we're not intended to raise our children alone, but we are intended to have the support and encouragement of the faith community. And that the church then becomes a community that very intentionally is supporting families. And indeed, where older men are highly invested in the lives of younger men and older women are highly invested in the lives of younger women. And that we are, by the very nature of the thing, an intergenerational community. And let me just mention this to you in passing for those of you that are younger. One of the most powerful questions I think I can ask you at any given time is if you're a young man, I want to know who are the older men in your life? Who are the older men who are blessing you, encouraging you, and mentoring you? And if you're a young woman, I want to know who are the older women in your life who are blessing, mentoring, and encouraging you. And one of the things that deeply grieves me is the number of times I will ask an Ambrose student this question, and the answer is, do you know where I'm going with this? No one. And they're coming out of Christian churches, alliance churches, churches such as this one. And these young people crave, in a sense, the blessing and mentoring of the generation that has gone before them, but they've, they've been raised within faith communities that are stratified, where there seems to be this deep disconnect. I'm almost falling over the edge of this, so just, I know, you're thinking to yourself, slow down, Gordon. It's okay, we've got it, relax. Except this is terribly important. My prayer for you is that Rexdale Alliance Church would genuinely be an intergenerational community. And I realize that after the service, everything within us, our temp. Our inclination, not a temptation, but our inclination, our proclivity is to connect with our friends, our peers, to talk about whatever it is we're mutually interested in. For those that would like to talk about the launch of the English Premier League, we'll have a little corner over there for those that want to talk about, you know, that kind of stuff. Within, you know, my peers that want to talk about EPL, we'll go over here, okay? And we talk about our stuff. But I wonder if there's all kinds of time for us to say, let's connect for coffee later on in the week. But on Sunday morning, post-service, we have our peripheral vision. We're watching. We're attentive to those that are a generation younger than ourselves, our generation older than ourselves. And you may say, well, this is terribly awkward. Yeah, I know. But it's terribly important. 
And I want to say to those of you that are teenagers, don't think that somehow you're just going to look to those that are older. A year and a half ago, our grand, my granddaughters were involved in a cowboy camp, and it's called cowboy even though primarily girls go, but be that, don't, just let it go. Well, I tried to fix it, Cal person camp, and the granddaughters just kind of gave me whatever. That's where I first heard D-U-H within several exclamation marks, grandpa, let it go. But anyways, and I watched this young woman, 14 years of age, Haley, teach my granddaughters how to ride a horse. Now, horses, if you haven't noticed, are huge. My granddaughters come from a rather a genetic pool that results in smaller people. Uh, these are tiny, tiny little girls. I mean, they come up barely beyond the knee of the horse. And there's this huge horse. And Haley's going to teach them to ride this huge horse. I'm thinking, this is just, this, this got disaster written all over it. I'm afraid of the horse. I'm going to get my distance from the horse, but I'm going to watch at least to say, maybe, they wanted me to be the photographer, so I was the photographer. Well, I'm going to watch these little girls learn how to ride a horse. And I listened. I listened to Haley at age 14 say again and again, you can do it. Her deep affirmation of these little girls, you can do this. This is not beyond you. Huge blessing. And then you could just tell as she walked, she had no anxiety about the horse. I did, but I wasn't the one doing the instruction. She had no anxiety about the horse. After they get up on the horse, after they, they get the initial kind of orientation, then they walk out of the stables. And my little granddaughter, I mean, she's, she's just four. Just four. Karis, Kaya, the second one, Kaya, is walking out, leading the horse, which is behind. Huge animal out behind her. She's just walking along. No anxiety level at all. That is, even at 14, Haley knew, if you're going to teach, there has to be blessing and no anxiety. Even then she knew. And I'm reminded of the power that she has in these little girls. The power of teenagers with the next generation already. That indeed we are all thinking this way. Who has come before us? We receive their wisdom, instruction, and blessing. And then who passes us? And you will not grow in wisdom unless you're connected to the generation that has gone before you. And then it behooves you, having received the gift, to turn and pass on the wisdom to the generation that follows. I'll say it again. May Rexdale Alliance Church be, genuinely speaking, an intergenerational community. My blessing to you, the congregation, is that the Lord would birth a design in our minds and that faith will well up in our hearts and that God would open our eyes to see the opportunities to impact the next generation and will and obedience to follow through. May God go with you.